Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We're currently studying in the book of James, Faith That Works. For more information, go to our website, EdenWorshipCenter.com. We're going to continue in our series in James. Hopefully you've been encouraged as we've been looking at these first few verses here in James, hearing what God has to say to us through it. And I also hope, and my prayer is, that we are continually challenged. Challenged to grow, challenged to go deep in our, our understanding of who our God is, who this Savior is that has come to save us. I was thinking this morning, uh, as we were upstairs praying a little bit before the worship team practice, uh, I thought, man, God, wouldn't it be unfortunate if we did a similar thing that some of us have done, and I think all of us have done at one point in our life, which is we look unto God as Savior and as God without really digging in. What does that mean? Who is this God? Who is this Savior? And husbands, it's as if you just referred to your wife by her first name and called her wife, but you really didn't dig in to find who is she? What, what pleases her? What makes her happy? How can I bring her joy? How can I serve her? What is her personality like? What, what does she enjoy doing? And we, we just say, you know, I'm so glad that you're my wife that you're here to serve all of my needs and, and make me feel happy. And yet, sometimes I think we do the same thing with God. And so James is so helpful in helping us think about some of these things and walk through who is this God? How does it impact the way we live our everyday lives? And today, we're going to be focusing, James chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 15, primarily on this idea of what does it mean when we go through trials and temptations and struggles What does it mean for us as believers? What does it mean when we stand up under that? What does it mean when temptation comes and we give in to that? Historian Shelby Foote, who's a uh, a Civil War historian, tells the story of a wounded soldier at the Civil War Battle of Shiloh who was injured, makes his way back to the line, and his commanding officer says, go to the back of the line, all the way to the back. Uh, You're out of the fight. You're done. Uh, you know, go get taken care of. And he, he goes back there, but within a few minutes, he's back at the front of the line talking to his commander, and he says, uh, give me a gun. And the commander says, I told you to go to the back of the line. And his response was, Captain, this fight ain't got no rear. There's no, there's no back of the line to retreat to because we're surrounded. And as Christians, sometimes that's how it feels. It feels like we are completely surrounded, like, like we're, we're this little island of faith and belief in a darkened world. It can almost seem like there's no end to temptation, no end to sin. And if we let despair set in, and practically, I want to I talk to you this morning, hopefully give you some uh, practical things to help you walk through hardship and trial and even despair so that you don't have to get to the feeling like, I'm never going to win. So many Christians end up there. I, I'm never going to beat this. I'm never going to accomplish this. And I want to tell you right off the bat, that is a very well-placed lie, entitled and planted there to keep you from believing the truth of what God has said he's already accomplished on your behalf. All of that despair, all of that hopelessness, it, it'll never work for me, I will never win, is in direct contradiction. We're, we're going to get to James in just a second, but I want to read you this from 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 56 and 58. You can make a note of it. It's going to be up on the screen for you. It says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Make a note of that word steadfast. We're going to hammer that this morning. Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That what you have done, what you have believed, what you have stood for, what you have prayed for, what you have lived for is not in vain. But I want you to look back up at verse 57 there because it says, but thanks be to God. And then it tells us that there is this victory that is coming to God's people through Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, thanks be to God who because we worked really hard, because we prayed really hard, because we fasted really hard, because we came to church every time the doors were open, because we went and became a missionary on a foreign field, because we didn't go to this movie and we only went to these movies, because we didn't listen to that movie, God has given us the victory. Did you notice it doesn't say that? 
It said all of the work of the, and you got to get this in your heart, people. All of the work of the victory in your life has been accomplished through Christ. It's done. And in fact, not only is it done, we don't earn it. We can't earn it. He says it's been, what's it say there? Given. Presented. Handed over to you. Our job in this is to receive it. That's it. Stand with me. We're going to read from James chapter 1 as we honor God's word as we read it together. James chapter 1. Just going to read three verses here, 12 through 15. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Let's pray. God, your word is a light unto our feet. It is the single illumination in a darkened world that makes our path known to us and straight. So we're asking, God, that you would speak to us through your word, confirm your word in our heart, give us open eyes and hearts and minds to receive it. I pray, Lord, that because of the power of your transforming word, Lord, we would live transformed lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. There's this phenomenon in America of stuffed animals for little kids. One of the most popular for about 100 years has been teddy bears. Anybody in here have a teddy bear when you were growing up? These are adults we're talking to. Uh, any, any of you still have your teddy bear? All right, there it is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They're these, like, cute, cuddly, little safety, you know, security things. And, and sometimes when we're, you know, we're scared of the dark or we're alone, then we, you know, you get your teddy bear. Like, I don't do this now. Like, don't think that. But, you know, the, this is sort of the, the childlike approach to safety and security. The, this thing, which, which I have imagined in my mind, will keep me safe. So in 1990, uh, these, this family went to the Bronx Zoo in New York, and these two young boys— probably influenced by the culture of love of soft, cuddly teddy bears, uh, looked at the polar bear exhibit and thought, don't those suckers look cuddly? Don't they look sweet and soft and lovable? And so they came up with a genius plan. Let's scale the wall and go pet them. It wasn't until the next morning that their bodies were found because their mom and dad didn't know where they had gone. Bodies were found mauled to death by the thing that they thought was going to give them peace and security and safety and look so cute and cuddly and wonderful. Folks, James tells us we're all going to go through trials. We are all going to be tempted. We are all going to be tested. Now, what we run to out of that is our choice. We don't have a choice about whether we're tested. We don't have a, a choice of whether trials are going to come. But what we respond is our choice. Now, we can choose to respond to what the world has told us is going to make us feel safe and happy and protected, and you don't need all of the things that the Bible said. Just just run to this. Even though there's a chance that that is not the teddy bear, that that is the polar bear that will destroy you in the end. In fact, that's where James says this is headed. Or we can choose to follow another path, a path that leads life. And we're going to be contrasting those two things this morning. And I want to just show you a little diagram of what James says, how this works, that it starts with trials. It it starts with hardships that come into our life of, of one form or another. Remember at the beginning of the book, he says, we all are going to face trials of various kinds. It's not going to look like everybody else, but when that trial comes, the next thing we're faced with is a temptation. What am I going to choose? Who am I going to follow? Am I going to choose to follow God? Am I going to choose to follow my own sinful desire? You notice here that James says, when these times come, don't blame God. 
This is, a, this is a modern word for us because we still face things when hard times come. The very first thing that comes out of people's mouth is, how could God let this happen? Now what we hear all the time? He says, don't blame God for your sinful response. When we, when we want something, we have this wrong idea of what's going to bring us happiness and peace and comfort and security. And it's a sinful desire. It's not based on the word of God. We will do anything we can to get that sinful desire, including sin. Many have shipwrecked marriages because they believe their sinful desire of having another partner outside of their spouse would bring them great happiness, and they were willing to sin to get it. And we know the story that that never brings joy. That brings devastation. Why? Because sin, when it's full-grown, gives birth to death. Destroys us. Here's the heartbreaking thing. We kind of know this going into it. Like, we know starting off, this is a bad choice. And yet we want to believe that it will bring us happiness and peace. But I want you to focus in on what's the middle of this problem here, and that's our sinful desires. Sinful desire is anything outside of what God's Word says that you think will bring you happiness and joy. And I don't know what your sinful desire is. Maybe it's not cheating on your husband or wife. Uh, Maybe it's, you know, if I can just alleviate this suffering, I'll be happy. If I can escape from here, I'll be happy. If I can escape, I don't even have to leave this area. I just got to get like really hammered drunk. Then I'll be happy. Because my life's so hard, it will be better if I do this. Even though the Word of God says don't get drunk because it leads to debauchery. We say, God, I think I have a better way than what your word says. Here's what John Piper says. He says, sin, uh, lust, for example, gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be more happy when I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. I'm telling you, one of the very first things that you can do to combat this, because we are all going to face it, So look at the person next to you and go, yeah, I face it too. Just look at them and go, yeah, you're not alone. Uh, When we face this, we have to remind ourselves there is is an allure here that tells me if I follow this, it will make me happier. But we also know that sin leads to death because we read it in the Bible, and we know sin leads to death because we've seen it in our lives. Now how it works? James chapter 4, we're going to get there in a while, says that why do we have fights? Why do we have quarrels? Why do we have struggles like that in our lives? He says it's because you want something, but you don't get it. Because you have this sinful desire, you will murder and attack and kill and fight and destroy so that you can have what it is that you want. Folks, it is an ungodly desire. And what I want to do this morning is give you several real practical things to combat that and I want to hammer you with the Word of God. So if you don't have a pencil out, you should get one out, because I'm going to write, I'm going to give you a bazillion scriptures to write down that are places for you to run to when these moments come. As you're doing that, Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher from the last century, says, what are the settings when you fall? When you struggle, when you've fallen, when you've sinned, when you've succumbed to temptation in the past, what was the settings? He says, this is tough, you ready? Avoid those. What were the props that you used to support your sin? Eliminate them. What people are you usually around? Avoid them. Here's this thing. There are two equally damning lies of Satan that we believe. Number one, just once won't hurt you. And number two, now that you've already ruined your life, you're beyond God's use, you might as well just enjoy sinning. Wow. Wow. Those are words from a hundred years ago speaking exactly into our day. Before you get too depressed, though, I want to spend the rest of the time giving you good news, giving you hope. And here it is. uh, We were at a conference this weekend, and Mark Dever said this. In Christ, this is probably a good one to write down. In Christ, our joy can be beyond the reach of our trials. I'll say that one more time. In Christ, our joy can be beyond the reach of our trials. 
that you're going to have trials that come into your life, and you think about it, what, it, what is the, the aim of those, especially from the enemy's point of view, it's to rob your joy, to kill your faith in God, so that you walk away and say, God, this whole thing isn't for me. And yet, if we rightly recognize what Christ has done and the position that he has already placed us in, our joy can be beyond the reach of our trials. Keep your finger here in James. Flip over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is kind of the opposite of this little spectrum that we just read. Temptation and sinful desire and sin leading to death. This is sort of the opposite of that. Romans 5 chapter 3 says this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. And I I want you to look at that, that last sentence there, and notice it's in the past tense. This isn't some future hope that God has to pour into your life. This isn't some future Holy Spirit that when that day comes, that God will give you a little bit more of the Holy Spirit than you have right now, that God has already endued you with power and filled you with the Holy Spirit. Our problem is not that we don't have enough of Him. The problem is we don't trust Him enough in the situation we still trust ourselves. And yet Paul says to the church in Rome that if we rightly see Christ and we rightly see ourselves in light of this, that we can actually do something ridiculous, and that's rejoice in our suffering. Now, I'm not talking about running around, singing songs, laughing, dancing when tragedy comes, because tragedy in this fallen world is meant to rip our hearts out, but it doesn't mean it can ever steal our joy. Because our hope is secure. Our anchor holds inside the veil. It's hope. So here's, let let me give you the opposite end of the the progression here. Rather than temptation and sinful desires and sin leading to death, that we go through trials and it becomes a testing time. It becomes a proving time. That yes, there's temptation to follow a sinful desire, but if we've already made up our mind ahead of time that I'm going to do things God's way, this becomes a proving time where God actually forms inside of us the character of his son. These aren't sinful desires. This is a Christ-like, steadfast, godly desire. I'm telling you, if we walk in that, here's here's what he says. It will produce in us something. It's not despair. It's hope. That it's possible for you to go through a trial and come out the other side with hope. And it doesn't end there because he said it ends with life. In fact, Paul ends here in Romans 5. He says, that hope does not disappoint us. doesn't put us to shame. Folks, just think about it. Let's just look at your own heart a second. When we followed our own sinful desires in the past, what was the end result? Usually, we ended up ashamed of what we did, didn't we? We thought it was going to bring us joy, but it becomes the things we don't even like to tell the stories now. He's saying, man, if you follow a different path, Trials can lead to hope that will not disappoint you. In fact, back in James, if you want to flip back there, he says that he's actually promised us a crown of life that is coming. Now, I, I, want, to, I want to just make a, a quick parenthesis here because, and I'm going to try and remind you of this a couple times. This is the promise to God's people. This is the promise to those who were once dead in their transgressions and sin, and God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, has made them alive in Christ. If that's, if that's not you, I, I want to extend to you the invitation that can be you this morning. But that this is not a universal truth that works on Oprah. It, it doesn't work like that. Because without Jesus, your trials will lead to temptations and you will succumb to your own sinful desires and it will lead to despair and hopelessness and death without Christ. But like Paul said, that's what some of you once were, but now by faith you are not that anymore. God gives us these small victories to remind us of that. So God's promise to his people to those who love him is a crown of life. Did you see that in James, uh, back in James chapter 1, 
Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Doesn't run away from it. Doesn't blame God. Doesn't blame everybody around him. Doesn't lash out in anger and then just say, well, you know, I I was just expressing myself. The, The catchphrase from our society, I was just being real, not holding anything back. Dude, you're, you're a sinful, messed up creature just like me. There's some stuff we should hold back. You with me? Right? If you're steadfast under trial, when you've stood the test, you will receive. That's a good one to underline in your Bible. You will receive the crown of life, which God has what? Promised to those who love him. Not, not promised to everybody in the world who watches Dr. Phil. That promise is not in the Bible. Joel Osteen cannot make the claim that God wants to bless you and turn your life around if you're not in Christ. That is not an offer the Bible makes to us. In fact, he makes the the opposite offer that if you don't receive Christ, you are going to follow that other path to sin and to death. In Christ, we actually have a different story. So God may use people. He may use situations. Get this one. This This is awesome. God may even use the devil to bring trials into your life. Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it suck at the end of all eternity to have thought you were this almighty, you know, supernatural being in this giant conflict with God, you know, good versus evil like you see in all the movies, and at the big reveal, you find out that you were just a pawn and there was no conflict ever since the cross because Christ has already triumphed. He's already made a fool of him publicly, and everything from then till now until the consummation of all things when Christ returns, the devil is just an idiot doing God's bidding. That would stink. I'd be mad. Like, he probably will go to hell on purpose after that. Like, I'm going. He will go to hell on purpose, by the way. But anyways, Uh, so God will use these things. Now, think about it. If we have the wrong perspective, we're going to blame these things. Isn't this what we do? Like, I have trouble, and it's your fault. It's this person's fault. I wouldn't have this trouble if it wasn't for you. That's why I hate you. Or I wouldn't have this trouble if it wasn't for my situation. Or even if you're really feeling spiritual, I wouldn't have this problem if it wasn't for the devil or this demonic thing going on. And God says, all of it is under the umbrella of my sovereignty. All of it. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you, draw near to God, and he draws near to you. It's done. It's a finished work. It's accomplished at the cross. But here's what we do. We miss it. I want to give you a couple ways we miss it. We miss it by responding to these situations and try and locate yourself in some of these with an angry or controlling response. We lash out in anger when things don't go our way, and we, we lash out at people with our words or our actions. We try and control them. When we do that, we're not just sinning against them because the Bible makes it clear that our sins are actually against God. We are accusing God of not being in control of the situation or not being good. Right? So think, think with me on this. You have a situation that comes to your life. You have a person who aggravates you, and we don't believe that God is good enough or big enough to be in control of it, so I've got to take care of this myself, and I lash out in anger. We're actually making an accusation against God. Another one we do is we get manipulative. We try and get people to do what we want them to do by scheming, by uh, the way we present things, sometimes by the coldness, that, that just wall that we put up to people until they do what it is we want them to do in that we are accusing God of not being powerful enough or able to accomplish things in our life. We can be vengeful. We can be vindictive and accuse God of not being just. God, the situation is unjust, and so I've got to lash out. Like, I've got to prove to them my vengeance. Except, we're going to read James chapter 4 that the anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. So we accuse God of not being just. God, you're not fair, so I'm going to have to sort this out myself. We can become self-reliant. Like, I tried the Christian thing, it didn't really work, so I'm going to do it my way. That's sort of the If you want to look at it from a a worldly positive view, the negative side of that, but it's the same coin, is we get isolated and withdrawn. 
Things have happened to you. Things have hurt you. People have said things. Situations have happened. You feel like God lets you down, and so you isolate. You withdraw. We're actually accusing God of not being trustworthy. By the way, all these things that we're accusing God, these are his nature and his character that we are saying, God, you are not actually God. We can get just real simple and go, I got to figure all this out myself. Like, I know, I know what the Bible says about this thing, but, you know, it's an old book. It's kind of out of date. God, you, there's some, some people out there actually saying we need to update the Bible, remove some stuff. I got to figure this out myself. We accuse God of not being all-knowing. He's not omniscient. Folks, when you start accusing God of lacking the character and the nature of God, that is blasphemy in our life. This is a dangerous, dangerous position. And here's how we get there. Sin makes you stupid. This is one of my favorite quotes for all of life. Sin makes you stupid. When I have a sinful desire that I'm willing to sin to get it, I will do stupid, stupid stuff, like think I'm smarter than God. Remember in James chapter 1, if you just look back a couple verses here, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Within the context of we're all going to face trials, he says, let him ask God. Let me ask you, that's in James 1, 5. Well, what is it that we're asking God? Are, are we asking for the answers? I think sometimes we, we have this idea like God is the smart kid in class, like smart guy Jesus who's sitting next to us. And we don't actually feel like putting the hard work in uh, to study for the test or to think through it on the test. So we go, Jesus, give me the right answers. Because I, I realize I could do some, you know, investment into looking into, you know, what, what car, you know, has the best gas mileage, which ones last, what, what are the ratings, what are, what are the problems that they have. But God, I, feel, I don't feel lazy. Come on. Just what car should I buy? Now, it's important to seek the will of God. Amen? To say, God, lead me, guide me, direct my path. Because God's promised he's going to do that. That doesn't mean that we say, God, I'm not willing to participate in this. In fact, the wisdom that God is telling us to ask for here is a little different. Let me read you a couple verses. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and a fool despises wisdom and instruction. Let me just tell you, there's a million of these verses. I just picked two of them. There's so many because what the Bible says is wisdom. When it says we're to ask God for this wisdom, it's not actually saying, ask God for the answers to the test. Ask God, God, who are you who has created this world that we may know how this world works? That's how you end up with the answers to the test. You figure out who is the God who has designed a world like this. Dennis Cole, when he was here last week, uh, with that awesome thing that he did going through the whole book of James. Uh, he had a quote where he said, the Bible is not a manual for life. It is Emmanuel, God with us. That it's not, it's not, you know, a list of rules and instructions that we have to follow. And if we do it, if we earn it and we live up to it, that we earn this crown of life, it's actually God with us. It's this God-breathed revelation of who he is because it's in God's word that he imparts to us his nature and his character. This, it, some of you have been like, you know, I just don't know who God is. I, I wish I really knew who God was. This is where God tells us who he is. This is it. These are the love letters that God has written to us to reveal his heart. And yet, as Christians, so many times we're like, yeah, that's great. Can we make a movie? You know, can we do something else? Can, can, we, can we just, you know, write a song about it or some, something that'll, you know, move my heart a little more emotionally? I want to just say worship is always a response to God's revealed truth. Always. That when we worship God, it's because we have seen something of who he is and our hearts respond to it. It doesn't work the other way around. It doesn't work with this emotional response and then we suddenly know something. Romans 8 verse 29 says this, For those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Folks, if you know somebody, you can hear stories about them that aren't accurate, and you know it immediately, don't you? 
Like, I know Chuck. I've hung out with Chuck for a long time. I, I know how he thinks. I, I know uh, most of the time when he's kidding and when he's not kidding. I know that we cannot put a cowbell anywhere near this dude. You with me? Yeah. So if somebody says something to me about Chuck, and because I know him, because I have spent time investing in our relationship, and they tell me something that is completely foreign to what I know, I will reject it. Even if it's somebody who seems to speak with authority, I will say, I will not believe you because that is not the guy that I know. Folks, the Bible gives us that opportunity as individual believers to know our God. And no matter what a preacher says uh, in a church, in fact, one of the things that, I, I love it, they said at this conference, we need to teach our people to know God and know his word in such a way that if we ever stand and proclaim a different gospel, they will shout us down and kick us out. Because they have ears that are tuned to hear the truth. That's awesome. That's retuning our hearts. So let's, let's spend the rest of our time here looking at trials, looking at temptations that come our way. And here's, this is the, the foundation under all of it. God's ultimate goal in your trial is to conform you to the nature and character of Christ. That's his goal. Whatever trial you're going through, whatever struggle you're going through, temptation you're going through, God's goal is, is to conform you to the image of Christ. Now, he's going to do this in a couple ways. One is, and these are, these are sometimes things. Sometimes God steps in, in the midst of our trial, in the midst of our agony and calling out to him, and he shows himself to be strong by healing, by delivering, by removing whatever this thing is, this suffering, and he demonstrates in that that he is merciful. So in the midst of your, your struggling, we cry out to God, God, I have, this, I have this horrible thing going on. Please heal me. Please deliver me. Please take this away. And sometimes God does that. And in so doing, he demonstrates that he is a merciful God. Here's the other side of that. Sometimes he sustains you through suffering. Sometimes he sees, as we read here in James, that you stand under the trial. That you're able to endure it, as Romans said. And by doing so, he demonstrates that he is faithful. Folks, I want to challenge us that merciful and faithful are not opposed to each other. They are equal measures of God's nature and his character. God is not less good when he shows himself faithful and sees us through it than when he shows himself merciful and delivers us out of it. In fact, it's actually less about God, it's more about us. That we are in the midst of this, and we go, God, I'm not really sure you're going to be faithful in my life. And God says, I'm going to walk this long, hard journey with you, and I'm going to prove to you through this that I am faithful, that I will never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. And there's sometimes where God says, I know exactly where you are. I'm going to show that I'm merciful. I'm going to show that I'm good. I'm going to deliver you out of this. We don't, we don't get to know which one God's going to do. We don't know how God is going to react in our lives. So we have to actually hold on not to, not to healing, not to deliverance, not even to our endurance. We have to hold on to God. That our, our faith and our hope and our anchor of salvation doesn't rest in the situations or the people that God brings into our life. It rests in the God who holds all things in his hand. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. In fact, we're not far from it. Let's just flip over to it. Hebrews, just turn back just a few pages. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 says this. This is one of these verses you're going to want to write down. When those times come when you feel tempted to chuck it all and give up. Depression, downcast, says this. Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. 
that when you, the Bible actually gives us a prescription here. When you feel weary, when you feel faint-hearted, you feel depressed, and you feel like giving up, the Bible says that we are to stop, usually stop thinking about ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that we are to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. And say, no, I'm going to stop going over and over and over this thing in my mind, and I'm going to consider him. Jesus, who endured from sinners the hostility that actually I deserved. But it's not just the hostility that I deserved, because I was never the Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth. I was never the God who spoke the world into being. I was never the God who made humanity to display my glory in my own image and my own likeness. I was never the God that they rejected. I was never the God that came in the image of his son to save them, to be a ransom, to die for them, and was rejected by them. I have no idea what that's like. Are you with me? I just got to be part of the crowd that crucified him. It says, when we are going through this, consider him, think about him, meditate on him. In fact, the verse before it, look at verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. Church, who do we look to? Jesus. Not a good preacher, not a great song, not some feeling you had when you were in youth group one time. We look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. So when you feel like, God, I'm not even sure I'm saved. I, I, I know I believed a long time ago, but I feel so shaken. We can look at this verse and go, I have chosen to put my trust in him, and he's the one who founded it. He's the one who perfected it. My hope is in him, and it's not in me. Come on, church. This is stuff you can hold on to. It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All you got to do, and I I was praying this morning, and I started thinking about this. When you are in that deepest, darkest hole, think about this. The Bible says it was God's good pleasure to send his son to be crushed on your behalf. It says pleasure. It says here it was for the joy that was set before him. That going to the cross, as, as horrible and tough to watch as movies like The Passion of the Christ are, and we, we go, oh, man. I can't believe Jesus went through that. He must have hated that so much. This is the goal of all eternity. That Jesus would have the opportunity to come and be crushed in our place. Because for the joy set before him, he endured it. And after that, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's like that song we sing. So when Satan tempts me, to despair and tells me of all of the sin, all, all of the stuff that's within you. Upward I look and see him there who put an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. I'm not free because I earned it or deserved it or I act like it. It's because God has counted me free. Because God's justice was satisfied when he crushed his son to look on Christ and pardon me. Those are amazing words of truth that can dig us out of the darkest place. I want to give you two things. We're going to wrap this up. How do we put our faith to work? This whole series is James communicating us a faith that works. And And we're looking for a faith that works over temptation. How do we put it to work? Number one, we stand firm in trial. If you're not there, look back at James 1. I want you to see this in God's word again and again and again so that your hope and your faith doesn't rest on me and what I said. It's actually on God's word. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That God says to you, when you are struggling, when you are down, you feel like the whole world is against you, when you stand in faith, believing God is who he says it is, God's word says you are blessed. That's a humongous truth. And it's only for believers. That that doesn't get extended to non-believers because they're not actually standing in any faith of who God is. But if you are a believer, God says, I'm offering you the crown of life. Not just happiness, but we're talking an eternal work that God is doing in your life. A crown of life. If the Holy Spirit, there's a big if on the front of this. If the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, 
this is what you will do. Notice this doesn't say, this is what you can do, this is what you might do, but if the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of you, this is actually what a Christian will do. The trials and temptations come, this doesn't mean you don't ever fall, but it means you, in the end, you will stand if the Holy Spirit is inside of you. You know why? Because he's got you. There was this awesome video uh, online of the, the paralyzed groom who dances with his wife at the, the wedding. Uh, Facebook nuts, did you see that? I saw the picture of it. I didn't bother reading it. I apologize. I, but uh, I was actually thinking about it this morning. I thought, God, that's exactly this picture. This guy had no ability to stand on his own, and they put him in this big harness, and it was this surprise so he could dance with his wife at their wedding. Beautiful picture, emotional picture. Here's, uh, let, me, let me give you this though. Imagine if the trial and the temptation and the struggles come and the, the bride looks at him, she goes, I, I know you did all that, but I'm not marrying you. I'm out. I'm walking away. And everybody looks at him and goes, this is a terrible wedding reception. We're out. We're done. And they, they walk away and they literally leave him hanging. You know what he will not do? Fall, because it's not in his ability to fall. He's stuck there. This is an awesome truth that when you feel like the whole world has turned against you, God has still got you. You're not going anywhere. And you may, you may fight and kick and struggle and try and choose all the wrong things and go all the wrong way. And in the end, here's what it says, you will stand under the trial. Because this isn't about your glory. This is about God's glory. And he said, I'm not sharing it with anybody, including you. God will not let you trump him on the day of salvation. God, you were mighty to save, (laughs) except for Matt, who gave you the finger and walked away at the end. God does not do that. He is mighty to save. And then, as if it wasn't enough, Jesus flexes his muscles a little bit and goes, try and pull him out of my hand. Go for it. Not happening. We stand firm under trial. It means we're going to end up doing a lot of working. I mean, let, let's not just uh, dish this off to sovereignty. We're going to have to work hard. In fact, Philippians 2 verse 12 says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if you just read that, you could actually think we save ourselves. That's why context is huge. Anytime you, you have some truth that you believe about God or his word, this is one of the things we want to teach you. You better know what the verses before and after say, what the chapter says that it's in, what the book says that it's in. So we don't just stop and go, work out your own salvation. It's all up to you. Why? Because the very next verse says this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's what this is saying. That as a Christian, you will work for the glory of God. Not only does God's word work in your life, you're going to be working to be sanctified. You're going to be working to live out the life of a Christian, but you're only doing that because God has already worked in you. Number one, gave you the will to do it, and number two, gave you the ability to do it. It means every good thing that we do is a gift from God. The want to comes from God. The able to comes from God. And here's the the reality why this works, because it's all for his glory. This isn't like the Matt Gingrich show. It's not the Destin show or the Mike Drake show or Justin Geigley show. Like God is putting his own glory on display in each one of your lives. That's why he gives you the desire to follow him. By the way, that's why when you mess up, you're miserable. If you're a Christian, you're miserable. You're tortured. You're going, God, I hate this. I'm not even sure you could love me anymore because I, I feel so bad about what I've done. That's because the Holy Spirit's convicting you. He's calling you back to himself. A couple hundred years ago, they figured this out. And they wrote down the Westminster Catechism to try and teach people who God is and what we believe. And the very first question they asked is, what is the chief end of man? What's the reason we're on this planet? What's the reason you're a Christian? What's the reason you exist? Why are you breathing air and have a beating heart right now? And here's the answer that everyone in this room should know. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That in our lives we glorify God, in all of eternity our lives will stand to glorify God. 
Bay Forest at the men's event last weekend asked this question, in the midst of trials, what's God teaching you? It's another good question to write down for when you're going through hardships. What's God teaching me? Yeah, I know the whole world's against me. I know everyone hates me. I know I'm going to lose my job. Uh, I know, you know, everybody gossips about me. I know blah, 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 stick in whatever thing it is. Okay, great. What is God teaching you? Because all those things are still not the problem. Usually at the heart of it, it's our demand, our desire to be something else. So the first thing is we stand. Here's the second thing real quick, and we're going to be done here, that we put off and we put other stuff on. We're dealing with our own sinful desires. James 1.14 said, when these things come, don't say God's doing this. You're being dragged away and enticed by your own sinful desire. Let, let me throw three scriptures at you in a row, and then we'll talk about them. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 says this. See if you pick up a pattern. That we are to put off our old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Colossians 3, verse 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to each other, since we've taken off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Romans 6, 6 says, For we know that our old self has been crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. If you didn't write those down, I'm going to give you those references. You need to write them down on your piece of paper. Here's what it says. Ephesians 4.22. Ephesians 4.22 said that we're to put off the old self. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 said that if you're already in Christ, you've already taken off the old self, but there's things, new things we have to be putting on. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Romans 6, 6 says that That's true because our old self is already crucified with Christ. Folks, these are verses when your world feels spinning out of control and you're not sure that you're even a Christian anymore that you can go to and read these and say, I know my world is crazy, but I have been crucified with Christ and my old self is dead. I'm just not acting like that's true. I'm not putting on the new anymore. I've quit doing that. So I want to give you three quick ways that we can do that. We can remind ourselves of this and then we're going to be done. Number one, You are not who you used to be. Number one, you are not who you used to be. The reference for this is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Again, this is the same pattern. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's the second one. That your power is not yours alone. So I'm not who I used to be. Christ has changed me. Christ has saved me. Christ has delivered me when I was dead. He made me alive. And now the power in which I live is not my own. Folks, if this one doesn't get you excited on a Sunday morning, I don't think anything can. Romans 8 verse 11 says, If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, in the same manner, that he brought life into the dead body of Jesus laying there. His spirit wasn't dead, but his, his physical body was dead. In the same manner, he will bring life into your mortal body through the spirit who is already dwelling inside of you if you're a believer. Folks, that is awesome news. And it's a reminder that we are, we are living out the Christian life by grace alone. That you haven't struggled to get here. It's actually this Holy Spirit who is inside of you. Titus chapter 2 verse 12 says this. He is training us to renounce ungodliness with its worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Folks, if that's not you, if that verse does not describe you, that you've been trained to put off worldly passions, uh, God is working in you to live self-controlled, that you're not upright, in this present age, here's, here's what you do. You, you have two choices. Number one, if you're not a Christian, you go, Jesus, save me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit that I could live this out. And if you're a Christian, you say, Holy Spirit, change me. Evidently, I'm still living for me and I'm not living for you. I'm believing that I am still God and in control of my life. I need to surrender that and allow you to work the fruit of the Holy Spirit inside of me. The peace and love and joy, long-suffering. Here's the last one. You're not who you used to be. 
Your power is not yours alone. This one's the best one. Your hope's not in yourself. Worship team, come on up. We're going to close in just a second. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 12. Our hope is not in us. It's not in our ability. Church, hear me. Your hope is not in your ability to live it out, to do it right, to change yourself, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make yourself do stuff or not do stuff, that our hope is in the living God who has chosen to save you and chosen to fill you with his Holy Spirit and his power and his love and his ability to live this out in a darkened world. Hebrews 2.12, this is from the New Living Translation, says this, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Can I say something to you? If you hear one message coming from the church that doesn't have Jesus and the gospel as the center of it, and in fact it puts your attention on something else, reject it and walk away. Now, I'm not talking about like if you hear one sermon and they don't say your magic words, you get up. I'm talking about if the heart of what is being talked about is leading you towards something else. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been in a lot of those meetings. I've gone to conferences, we were talking about this week, that just got weird. And here's why they got weird. Because we stopped focusing the main thing on Jesus and his gospel of saving people through grace and faith. So we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. He is the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarded the shame, is now seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Stand up on your feet. Let's, let's respond to this as we sing. By making a choice this morning where our faith rests and where it lies. I know I talked at you for a while. Here's what, here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want it to, to be kind of just groggy, sleepy, waking up, saying, oh, it was a good message, and, and we sang the song, and, and that was it. I, I think we would miss the entire point. The entire point is that we come to a moment of decision, and church, let, let me tell you, we can do it in a setting like this, or God will bring additional trials and temptations and struggles into your life until you get this one right. Especially if you're a Christian, he will do it over and over and over again. That we make a call where we say, God, I'm no longer going to trust in myself. I'm not going to trust in my ability to figure it out or work it out or live it out. I'm actually going to trust in Christ alone who has already accomplished it. He's my only hope, my only security. And so as we sing this, I want to just encourage you, let that be your response. Let that be your heart where these are more than just words on a wall that happen to line up with the, the song that's going on, let them be words that spring from your heart who has seen the goodness of God, the saving power of Jesus Christ, and you say, God, I literally have nothing in myself that can equal that. I don't have anything to offer myself, so I fall solely on your grace alone.